of you are a bit for historians or fancy yourself as people who do well in pub quizzes? No one. Oh, my goodness. Let's see how you do. I've got a year in mind, and I want to see whether you can guess what year I'm thinking of. So, some questions are going to appear on the screen. This was the year that Boeing introduced the first 747 jumbo jet. Okay, hold that thought. Let's give you some other ones. Uh, this was also the year that two black athletes staged a silent demonstration against racial discrimination at the Mexico City Summer Olympics by raising a black fist love fist during the national anthem after being presented with their gold and bronze medals. I'm hearing some murmuring. Are some of you getting the idea? Anyone think they know which year it is? Okay, we've got one at the back. Hold that thought. Next one. This was the year that the first manned spacecraft orbited the moon. Ooh, we're hearing some sounds. Let's see. This is also the year, any footballers here, this might help clarify it for you, the year that Manchester United won the European Cup final, becoming the first English team to do so. Is it getting a bit clearer in your minds, maybe, some of you, yet? Yeah. And the last one, this was also the year, the same year that the 39-year-old civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Memphis Tennessee. What year am I talking about? Yes, well done, 1968, brilliant. It was also the year, amongst all those other events that happened, it was the year that Tear Fund was started, which makes us, who's good at maths? 50 years old this year, absolutely. Tear Fund was started by the Evangelical Alliance, who basically looked at what was going on around in the world, saw incredible suffering, and possibly because of um, television screens bringing images into our homes in a way that hadn't happened in quite the way before. And they were thinking, like, we're preaching the gospel as churches. We're talking to people about how God loves them. We have got to marry that with demonstration of God's love to those who are in the worst situations in the world. So they set up a relief fund the Evangelical Alliance Relief Fund, so Tear Fund was started. And I bet there are people here who remember that. Show me a hand if you were, yes? Maybe one, yeah, someone at the back, someone. And some people have, you know, have been supporters for the whole of the 50 years with us, which is amazing. And we love the support that we get from your church. We've had 10 wonderful years, uh, which Clive has been our chair, and I've joined during the last five years of that, and um, I'm grateful to you as a church for the way that you have provided a place for Clive to be a springboard to serve us in that way, and any one of us can do that in different realms, can't we? We are flourishing and serving the world and the church in different places, and Clive has done that in incredible ways, so thank you, church, for supporting him, and thank you for Clive. And thank you, too, for all of the supporters here who've been walking with us during those years. I hope this evening... Um, there'll be some little story things that will encourage you about the work that you've been supporting. So 50 years is a really big deal in the Bible. 50 years um, was um, the year in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy where um, the law as revealed to, by God to Moses, they were to say that the, um, every 50th year they were to have a year of Jubilee. Absolutely, it was a really big thing. And in essence, Jubilee was all about restoration. It was about ordering society in such a way that every individual would flourish. That is a wonderful aspiration, isn't it? Can you imagine? In ordering society, think about our own society, ordering it in such a way that everyone, the least and the lost, would flourish. 
And as we look back over 50 years as Tear Fund, we see extraordinary ways so many individuals and communities who have been helped by their local churches to flourish and experience restoration in different ways. And the story about global poverty is a really good news story. I don't know if you know that. But the World Bank has said that over the last 25 years, global poverty, those living in extreme poverty, has halved. Isn't that phenomenal? It's a good news story. We should be thankful. And churches have been uh, part of the catalyst for that happening in their actions. And in the countries that where we're working, we've seen millions of people lifted from material and spiritual poverty. I, I think of, let me just tell you a story about one person, a picture will come up of Mary, someone I met on the first trip. No, that's a, uh, the one before that, if you don't mind. That's right, Mary. Um, and she's typical of so many of the people that we uh, exist to help. So Mary told me her story when I met her. She'd been abandoned by her husband uh, with four children, and she worked on somebody else's land, and she would go farm for them, and she'd be paid in kind, a bit of food which she'd take home to her children. But she said, we were always hungry. And she had absolutely no hope for the future that life would ever change, because how could it? How could it possibly? How would things be different for her own children? But her local church, supported by Tear Fund, was running this process which starts with some Bible studies. She stumbled upon it. She said, I went along as an intruder. And she heard there as they studied the, um, the feeding of the 5,000, that there was a, she said to me, I heard there was a God who cared about hungry people. And it was such good news to her because she was hungry every day. And it turned out there's a God who cares about her. And so they discovered as they studied this Bible study together that um, as the disciples worked together and worked with God, that he helped them and they solved a great problem. So the church talked about how they could do that together. They could work together. And she went home to her children and she told them, there's a God who cares and he's going to help us. And she started growing a few crops. They were able to buy a few animals, little hens, eggs, a pig, piglets, goats, cows. She's got her kids in school and her, her daughter. Actually, it was funny because Mary had a, a son called Joseph and she had a daughter called Angel. I'm not kidding. And Angel had just done her O-levels with her. I met her. Totally restored her life. And, and Mary, this beautiful woman that we met, had come into this extraordinary living relationship with God um, and became radiant worshipper of him. Complete restoration. And that's happened millions of times over. But the need is still great. Much as it's a great news story about global poverty, the bad side, the flip side, is that for those living in the bottom billion, life is worse now than it was 40 years ago. Life is worse than it was 40 years ago. Um, the writer of a book called The Bottom Billion has said that life for those living in the bottom billion is like life was like in England in the 14th century. Can you imagine that? People living the kind of existence that we just think about as the Dark Ages. Civil wars destroying countries, meaning that they never develop. Plagues killing people, as malaria does today in the poorest parts of the world. Lack of clean water. Lack of education. So life is still bad for so many people. Families today forced to leave their countries because of conflicts raging in places like Syria. Your church has been amazing the way you've poured out support for what the church and what Tear Fund are doing in that country. But life is hard there. We only turn on our televisions and we see that it's really grim for individuals. 
Life is so hard. We take education as such a basic right for ourselves and our children, don't we? But in so many parts of the world, people don't have access to training that will give them the skills that help them to do things for themselves, help them to know how to do that. And you think we've just had all this outpouring of snow, probably parts of our country are going to be flooded in the coming days. But we have basic infrastructure in our country that means that actually life isn't too grim. There's a safety net in our country. In the poorest parts of the world, if you think about India and Bangladesh, the floods that happen there mean that people lose everything. Life is very, very hard for people living in the poorest countries in the world. There's another woman that um, we came across. The next picture was someone called Jumana. I was so moved by her story. Some of you will have heard about it in some of our mailings. But we heard that this woman, in a country where now there's no rain, it seems there's almost too much rain or there's no, no rain at all, she was driven to feed her children to have to dig in ants' nests and dig down and take out the grass seed that they had dug they buried down there, she'd take them out and make a broth to feed her children. That's all she had to feed her children. So life is really grim, really hard, and it's still a very live issue, those living in extreme poverty. And when we read scripture, when we read the Bible, we realize these are things that matter profoundly to God. This isn't just an issue for a niche group within a church who are concerned about poverty. This is something that God is passionate about. So we just read together Psalm 146. It's a kind of description. It's a, God, a description of who God is. He's saying, we worship this God. Who is this God that we worship? Well, here are these things. Let me tell you these things about him, the psalmist says. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. This is who God is. This is the God we worship, the one who holds these people close to his heart. They've been called the quartet of the vulnerable. The widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. And on all the pages of the Old Testament, you'll see just a continual reminder that these are people that God cares profoundly about. So if this is who God is, if you look at the nature of God and you see this profound care for the poor, surely we as his people and his children made in his image, we should reflect his nature as well. And it should be coursing through our veins. Our hearts should be heavy with the needs of the poor upon them as well. So Israel as a nation was charged to create a culture of social justice for the poor and the vulnerable because it was the way that their nation could reveal what God was like to the surrounding nations. In the way that they lived, the way that they cared for the poor, people would see what the God that they worshipped was like. So Deuteronomy says in chapter 4, Obey God's commands completely and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, How wise and prudent are the people of this great nation. For what great nation has a God as near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I'm giving you today? 
Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors. Anyone like Tim Keller? Yeah, he's a great Bible teacher and writer. If you want to be encouraged, if you want a good book to read at the minute, I could really suggest getting one of his. And he writes in his book, Generous Justice, if believers in God don't honor the cries and claims of the poor, we don't honor him whatever we profess because we hide his beauty from the eyes of the world. That's a chilling thought, isn't it? If we don't honor the cries and claims of the poor. We don't honor him whatever we profess. We sing worship to him. We pour out our love him, but it's got to be shown up. It's got to be followed up by care for the poor or it's empty. And you only read Isaiah 58 to read how God feels about that. It's an abomination to him that we worship him and we don't live it out in our lives. And I know that you as a church are making real efforts and attempts, and this whole weekend has been about your commitment to do that. But nevertheless, it's a challenge. It would be hard for any one of us to sit here and say, this is something I've completely got sorted. I'm really great. I'm a model for this in my life. Just look at me. There's always room, isn't there, for growth and to do more. So if we look at the way um, the laws that were put in place revealed that they should do, the way they should live as a society for Israel. They had several things, as we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, they were to, gleaning was one of them, so landowners couldn't gather all the grain that their land produced. They had to leave some for the poor to gather for themselves. In other words, they were to voluntarily limit their profit-taking. What an extraordinary idea for some of you business people. Voluntarily, not eke out everything that you can from your workers, paying the minimum wage all the time. That would be the equivalent today, wouldn't it? Making your terms and conditions so hard. But actually, through gleaning, the poor were able to be self-sufficient. They could work. They could go along the edges of the fields gathering, and they could provide for their families in that way. Tithing was another way, by giving 10% to the Levites and the priests for the upkeep of the temples. Do you know that every third year, all those tithes would go into storehouses for the poor, the immigrants, the fathers, and the widows? A real provision for them. And every seventh year was a Sabbath year, in which debts were to be cancelled and slaves were to be freed. And then after seven Sabbath years, what do you get? Seven sevens the next year was a year of jubilee. Year of jubilee. And in that year, not only were debts to be forgiven and slaves to be freed, but the lamb was to go back to its original tribal and family allotments made when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And so over a 50-year period, some families inevitably were going to do better than others and acquire more land, while others would become poorer. They may even need to sell their land or lose it and even become slaves and working on other people's land in the way that Mary had to that I've seen in Uganda. And uh, Jubilee was this wonderful provision to counter the natural successes and failures that were always going to happen in a society where greed and exploitation meant that some people suffered more than others. And each person, it meant, had a once-in-a-lifetime chance to start afresh, no matter how they'd lived their lives, no matter what mistakes they'd made. So if you combine all the requirements for radical generosity that there are in Scripture and the regulations that God gave Moses, it's no surprise that God could have said to the people, there should be no poor among you. It shouldn't be necessary if you order things rightly. And it doesn't mean that people wouldn't continue to fall into poverty, but if Israel as an entire society 
had kept God's laws perfectly with all their hearts, there wouldn't have been no long-term permanent poverty. That's how much it mattered to God that he would order his people to order their society in such a way. And you may be thinking, well, that was the Old Testament. How many of you have given us a list of kind of ways they were meant to do this, the Old Testament people? But you know, when we turn to the New Testament, we see that Jesus exceeds the demands he requires of his people exceed even those of the Old Testament. So let's look at his life. As he stands up to start his public ministry right at the beginning, what scripture does he take to choose? What does he choose as the kind of mandate for what his life and his ministry were going to be about? He took the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he read from it, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he finished by proclaiming, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Shocking words to those who were there, because he was basically saying, all these things are true about me in my life. I'm the one who's come to bring about this new day, the year of the Lord's favor. The kind of king that he was, kingdom he was seeking to establish was one that was going to bring liberation and restoration for captives and for the poor. It was going to be a good day. That's the day that we live in now as his people. We're people of that new covenant. So John the Baptist's disciples, they were all kind of intrigued by this Jesus, everyone. They came asking, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said to them, go back and report to John what you hear, hear and see is happening. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, yes, he's the Messiah, he's the one. His whole life was hallmarked by care for the poor, the people he spent time with, those that he prioritized. So he lived and he ate with people who were ostracized by others. He raised the son of a poor man, a poor widow. He showed incredible tender kindness and respect to women that were ostracized by their communities who'd fallen in different ways. He spoke with them in public, something that men wouldn't even do. He gave time to children. And he didn't display the kind of racism of his culture, but he made a hated Samaritan the hero of his greatest, most known, probably, parable. So clearly, although he was preaching good news for all, he had a special bias for the poor, something that was picked up a good few years ago in a report by the Church of England. So if that's true, if he was here on earth today, as he was on earth then, where would you find Jesus? If he was here, limited in the flesh to only one place, where would we find him? I reckon there's a good chance we would find him in one of those poorest, war-torn countries in the world. We might find him in Syria, in eastern Ghouta. We might find him with the Rohingya people in Bangladesh who've had to flee. We might find him in East Africa where people like Jamana and Mary have been struggling to feed their children because the rains don't come. 
And uh, just to illustrate what Tear Fund are doing in some of those places, let me tell you about the Democratic Republic of Congo, because that's a place that I'm fairly sure we might well find him. A country that's just war-torn, so destroyed by ongoing conflict for so long. It's the second biggest country in Africa, did you know? And the population is 80 million people. And despite being really rich in natural resources, it's one of the world's poorest countries with 87% of people there living on less than £1.45 a day, living in extreme poverty. 87% of 80 million people. This is an extraordinary uh, country just fueled by brokenness, by, um, devastated by repeated conflicts, with ongoing t turmoil going on even today in the east of the country. It's a fragile state, fragile in so many different ways, economically, politically, so different. But actually, good things are happening there. As Tear Fund, what we would say about ourselves, we pray, there's so much prayer that goes on at Tear Fund. One thing that we feel absolutely committed about is that God has called us to follow Jesus where the need is greatest in the world. We know that poverty matters to the Lord. He cares for the poor. So we follow him where the need is greatest in the world. We find Christians there. We find the church there. And we come alongside them to strengthen them, to be everything that the church is meant to be, to help them flourish. So in the DRC, much as it's one of the poorest countries in the world, what we've discovered by going there, finding the church, is that extraordinary signs of the kingdom are breaking out. So we're going to see a quick film now here, which is going to give you an insight into the life of one particular woman, but the nature of our work there. We believe restoration is available for everyone. Motivated by the relentless love of Jesus, we're helping individuals and communities unlock their God-given potential and discover that the answer to poverty lies within themselves. In the 50 years since we started, working alongside local church partners, we have seen millions of people across the world released from poverty. People like Burungi. My name is Birungi. I am from a village in the rainforest of the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is a country full of potential, but after years of fighting, life is hard for families, and it is especially hard for girls. My family has always been poor. When I was younger, I had to stay at home to look after my little brother and sister. I wanted to care for them, but I really wanted to go to school. I knew that if I studied hard at school, I could get a job. But school was too expensive. My uncle heard about a skill center supported by Tiafan's partner. All are welcome, even children who have never been to school. When I heard there was a place for me, I was so happy. They told me how Jesus offers freedom to everyone. I qualified and got a sewing machine to start a dressmaking business. I started earning. I then saved for a better sewing machine powered by pedals. I then saved more to buy a piglet. 
I sold the adult pig and had money to buy a calf. I'm now saving for more calves. When I sell my cows, I will be able to buy land or a house. When I'm sowing, I feel empowered. I wanted to be set free. And I was. Without my training, I would still be at home, without even enough food to live on. I would be suffering. I thank God for this work and how TFN support set me free. Birungi has overcome extreme poverty. She has a hope and a future restored to her and is now a role model in her community. But 87% of people in the Democratic Republic of Congo still live below the poverty line. Too many lives around the world remain broken. We believe an end to poverty is possible. And we all have a part to play. We won't stop. We won't stop. We won't stop. Until poverty stops. Until poverty stops. Will you join us? I love that story about Burungi because it um, perfectly captures the way that we at Tear Fund work. It's just a glorious picture of a woman with so much potential within her, yet within her culture, within her country, she as a, a young girl and then as a woman hasn't been prioritised by those around her. She, she was the one because she was the girl that stayed at home looking after the children. She didn't get the schooling that she would have loved. And yet this partner, Action on Trade, which means self-help, They've given her this training that has helped her develop her potential. She's now got skills and abilities that have, you've seen, the way that that's just absolutely transformed her life. And uh, this is the way that we work. It's a church and community transformation process that doesn't just give people handouts or aid, but actually helps them to help themselves. That's what we found time and again, that actually people are able, given a little bit, and it might start with the tiniest amount. As in a self-help saving group, you might start by saving 2p a week, but with others, you, you save together, and then suddenly you can buy animals. It might start with training, as for Beringi there, where actually, because she's given some training, then she can do things for herself and for her children, so that, like my friend Mary, she can get her kids to school, and that the whole of their future changes for them. It's a wonderful way that gives people dignity, so when you go and you visit, they don't just say, thank you, thank you for what you've done, for what you did for us, what you gave us. They say, look what I've done. Look what I've done. Look what I've been able to do for my family. Look the way I've been able to get my children through to school. Look at the house I've been able to build. Because they've been given some training and help to see their situation differently. And it's just beautiful the way that time and again you hear these stories because the local church is running these projects. They're Christian-based um, organizations, charities, not charities, they're churches running these projects, this training. So people are not only just um, learning skills and training, they're hearing that there's a God who loves them and they are discovering that God's for them, that they're precious children of God with so much potential so Burungi herself, she was able to say that she recognizes she's just a child of God. She's got so much hope for the future. But there is so much need still greater in the world, which is why we press on in these poorest countries in the world. And in our 50th year, we've got a vision to see 5 million 
lives changed and transformed. We are so grateful for your church, for the support that you give us in different ways to the different partners, and that we're, we're looking forward to exploring how that can go forward in the future. We're grateful for the many of you who give directly to Tear Fund. We couldn't do any of the work that we do without your support. And I hope that Burungi's story gives you a real insight into how we're working. And we would love others of you to get on board with us. You can do that by um, looking on our website and you can sign up there to get news and emails and stories come through to you. We'd love to do that. Mike's going to be going off tomorrow to Tanzania. Hopefully he's going to come back with stories like Mary's story, like Burungi's story, and he'll be able to tell you what he's seeing the church do there. But as I draw to a close, I want us to think as well about our own situation here in Guildford, where you live. Because, you know, if this is who God is, that he has a heart for the poor and we're his people, he wants to see us demonstrating that in our lives, not just by our concern for those who are far off, though he wants that. And it's absolutely appropriate that we should be supporting the church in the poorest places in the world and making that part of our discipleship. But he also wants us to outwork it in our lives here and now. And so let me, I mean, these spotlights are shining a light on me. I almost want to turn them on you and say, would you allow the Spirit of God to search your heart for a moment and say, if this is who God is and this is his nature, to what extent is it being shown? shown? To what extent can it be seen in my own heart? To what extent am I allowing the Holy Spirit to soften my heart to the needs of those around me? To what extent am I guarding myself, protecting myself from things that are going to inconvenience me or cause me discomfort? Am I allowing God to touch my pocket, my wallet, my purse, my bank account, my diary, my time? Because if this is the God that we worship... He desires so much more than our words of worship, our fellowship together. He calls us to go out and to show love and care to the poorest of the poor. I was reminded this morning of that scripture from Ezekiel 47 of the river flowing from the temple, the place where the presence of God was understood to dwell. And the river flew out into the desert places and it, it, it was this transforming presence. And the desert became this garden, the, the Dead Sea was filled with fishes. There were fishermen everywhere, trees. It was a beautiful vision. That's a vision of what God does when his spirit pours out from the church into the world. It brings restoration. And we are the church. We're not designed for these four walls only. We're designed for out there. And when we go from here tonight, we go into all the places where we live, we work, where we relax. In those places, God wants us to be his people, demonstrating his nature, that others would see what he's like. They'd see his beauty. So my prayer is this evening that we rededicate our lives to him, to be used by him. And that's going to require his Holy Spirit within us, refreshing us, softening our hearts again, moving us to action. Are you up for that? Maybe. Some of you. <laughs> I'm going to invite you to stand and I'd like us to pray. One of the things that I know is that even when we don't feel like we've got an emotional yes to something, when we can consent to it in our head, in our mind, God is well able by his spirit 
to bring about a change in our hearts. And it doesn't always happen instantly. I've had in my own experience that actually you can say a yes to God that it goes along the lines of, Lord, I want to do that. I don't want to, but I want to want to. So I'm going to acknowledge that I've been in that position at times and give you permission to say, actually, that's where I am. At the same time, some of you are saying, like, I'm really, really broken by this and I want to offer my life more. Wherever you're at, let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill us afresh. You might want to close your eyes to distraction around you.